1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 18. I appeal to you, my friends, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Agree among yourselves and avoid divisions. Let there be complete unity of mind and thought. My friends, it has been brought to my notice by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. Each of you is saying, I am for Paul, or I am for Apollos, or I am for Cephas, or I am for Christ. Surely Christ has not divided. Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Was it in Paul's name that you were baptized? Thank God I never baptized any of you, except Crispus and Gaius. No one can say they were baptized in my name. I did, of course, baptize the household of Stephanus. I cannot think of anyone else. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel and to do it without recourse to the skills of rhetoric, lest the cross of Christ be robbed of its effect. The message of the cross is sheer folly to those on the way to destruction. But to us, who are on the way to salvation, it is the power of God. Here ends our first reading. The second reading is taken from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 4, and verses 12 to 23. When he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and settled at Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee in the district of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah about the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the road to the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people that lived in darkness have seen a great light. Light has dawned on those who lived in the land of death's dark shadow. From that day, Jesus began to proclaim the message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee when he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Come with me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on further, he saw another pair of brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. He called them, and at once they left the boat and their father, and followed him. He traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of illness and infirmity among the people. Here ends the second reading. It's very good to be here with you today during this week of prayer for Christian unity. Thank you for both your invitation and your welcome. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Whenever I read any of the accounts of Jesus calling the disciples, I'm left with the question, why? What was it about him that caused them, as we've just heard in Matthew, to drop everything and follow him instantly, immediately? To leave their nets, in other words, their livelihood, their income, and even their family, seemingly without a second thought, and follow him just like that? Did they realize at the time what a huge gamble it must have been? What was it about Jesus that they were prepared to take that risk? In pondering these questions, I find myself remembering a book launch at St. James's a few years ago. The author was Mark Oliver Everett, better known to many as E, lead singer and songwriter of an indie band called The Eels. E is known for being a rather odd, mercurial sort of figure, very much the flawed genius with a troubled and tragic family history. The evening included four extracts from E's autobiography, Things the Grandchildren Should Know. The first three were read by members of the audience selected on the spot. The fourth and final reading featured a surprise appearance by Pete Townsend, guitarist, singer and songwriter of the well-known rock band The Who. It was clear that none of the four readers, including Townsend, had seen in advance the excerpts they were to read. Townsend's passage told of E's dilemma, whilst in the middle of a forest, on a 14-day silent spiritual retreat, in which speaking and writing were strictly forbidden, when a new song started forming in his head. As he read aloud of E's increasing desperation to capture his embryonic work, his reading was punctuated with spontaneous knowing laughter, especially when he came to E's lament. If only he could sing this new song down the telephone line to his answer machine. Except in this forest retreat center, there were no phones. The only solution was to commandeer the only writing implement available in the entire camp, the pencil on the sign-up sheet for cleaning the bathroom, and in a forbidden and clandestine act, to write the lyrics on a roll of toilet paper. For me, Townsend's unprompted laughter in the middle of this reading was a delightful and surefire sign of recognition, the delight of one artist finding an experience with which he could so closely identify, encapsulated before him. He wasn't just laughing as we were because it was funny. This was much more. He was laughing because it was real. This was something he'd also experienced. He'd been there himself. Maybe not on a 14-day silent retreat in the middle of a forest, but nonetheless, he'd been there. And in that act of recognition, I found myself thinking of the late John O'Donoghue, who died unexpectedly only a few weeks before. O'Donoghue was an Irish priest, 
poet and philosopher, a great advocate of Celtic spirituality, with a real gift for conveying its riches to a wide and varied audience. In one of his most popular books, Anamkara, a Gaelic term meaning soul friend, he writes of love as an ancient recognition and of how each of us in our passage through life needs a soul friend, one with whom we can share the journey of life, of spirituality, of faith, and of how we can instinctively recognize that person when we encounter them, because it's as if something deep within us recognizes and connects with something deep within them. I think it's in those moments of recognition that we really become alive, when we encounter a kindred spirit in another, when deep calls to deep, when we encounter great art, great music, great poetry, that captures something of the essence of what it is to be a human being and something of the potential of being human. Then we not only come alive, but are inspired to journey on, to explore more deeply. There is at once a sense of both homecoming and of quest, a sense of finding that ancient source deep within, and yet also of embarking on a huge unknown adventure. I think that has a great deal to do with why the disciples followed Jesus. I think that in him, whether it was something in his eyes, his voice, his manner, or simply that intriguing invitation, follow me and I will make you fish for people. They recognized and connected with something compelling and authentic. In Jesus, they find all at once both that sense of homecoming, of ancient recognition, and also that sense of quest, of embarking on an unknown adventure. In Jesus, they connect with the one who can teach them not only what it means to be a human being, but in whom they can discover the full potential that lies within their humanity. They knew instantly, instinctively, at a very deep level, that Jesus was like no one they had ever met. Someone for and in whom the huge risk is more than worth taking. But all this takes place at a level deeper than words, in a place within themselves that's older than time. Follow me. Is it a plea or a challenge? A command or an invitation? Whatever else it is, for them in that moment, it's something compelling and irresistible. And so the question changes not from why, how on earth can they say yes, to how can they possibly say no? This date to be with you today has been in my diary since June last year, although I had no idea back then quite what a momentous and historic week this would turn out to be in terms of world politics. On Monday, we learned of the Prime Minister's plans for advancing Brexit, and then on Friday, witnessed the inauguration of Donald Trump as President of the USA, following an election campaign recognized as one of the most vitriolic and divisive in history. And yesterday's Women's March saw millions of people joining in rallies in over 600 cities worldwide. The need for reconciliation and unity seems urgent. 
I must admit to viewing the current political turmoil through a very particular lens. In October last year, I spent a very moving four days in Bosnia with a delegation from the Muslim charity remembering Srebrenica. The purpose of our trip was to learn about the 1992 to 1995 war involving the siege of Sarajevo, the Srebrenica genocide, and the terrible suffering, suffering of the Bosniaks, the Bosnian Muslims. Moreover, we hoped to emerge with a deeper understanding of not just what happened, but how it happened, of how a country where there seemed to be successful integration of Roman Catholic, Muslim, and Orthodox, and not just integration, but intermarrying, things could go so horribly wrong. During our four-day stay, we learned from survivors who told us firsthand of the 47-month-long siege of Sarajevo and of the genocide at Srebrenica, when 8,372 Bosniak men and boys were massacred in the space of a few terrible, savage days in July 1995. The systematic mass rape of up to 20,000 women was another appalling aspect of the conflict. It has been described as the worst crime on European soil since the Second World War. We learned how only a couple of weeks after the shelling started in Sarajevo, suddenly all the Serbs disappeared from the city overnight. Their Bosniak neighbors literally awoke to find them gone vanished without a trace. We were told of how, through the hate mongers, such as Radovan Karadzic, Slobodan Milosevic, and Ratko Miladic, who spoke in the rhetoric of them and us, fear spread like contagion, and the Bosniaks were demonized as their former neighbors took up arms and turned against them. The delegation was intensive and at times harrowing and heartbreaking. We visited museums and exhibitions in Sarajevo and in the area surrounding Srebrenica, the former Dutch battalion UN base, which became central to the genocide and right opposite across the road, the Potocari Memorial Cemetery, home to over 6,000 graves. Richard, our guide for the whole trip, is a citizen of Sarajevo, who aged 19 spent what he said should have been his wild years defending his city in the Bosniak army. We met Hassan, who aged 19, joined the death march, the long column of thousands of desperate men and boys who walked for three days in the hills above Potocari in a bid to reach safety in Bosniak-controlled territory. The column, as it was called, was shelled and many killed. Others were captured or were duped into surrendering at the promise of no harm, only to be led to their deaths. Hassan survived and made it to safety, but lost his father, uncle, and twin brother. We met Najad, who aged 17 was one of only two survivors from a mass execution of 2,000. We also met Mayira, who lost her husband, three sons, and grandson, and now lives alone with her memories. We asked each survivor what message they wanted us to take home from our trip. Their reply was especially urgent in the light of current disturbing trends in world politics and the events of this week. Don't let hate take hold. 
As soon as you hear the words them and us, it's time to act. Don't let that happen, because that's how it starts. And we know where that can lead. Which brings me on to Christian unity and Paul's words to the Corinthians. Christian unity is not always an easy path, as Paul makes clear. In a strange way, I find this passage from Corinthians reassuring, as it counteracts the impression we often get that the early church was harmonious right from the start. For here it's clear that Christian unity was in short supply in first century Corinth, a lively city and a crowded trading center with a busy cosmopolitan and multicultural feel. It's well known that Corinth was one of the many places that Paul visited on his mission to spread the gospel. And there's evidence to suggest that on one of his early visits, Paul had stayed there for 18 months. There's little doubt that he not only built up the Christian community, but also got to know some of the Corinthian Christians very well. Although in the introduction to his letter, Paul gives thanks for their growth in faith and their spiritual gifts, soon becomes clear that all is not well in Corinth. The naming of the source of these reports of factions and infighting is simply Chloe's people, another indication of how well Paul knows them. Christians are claiming allegiance to a variety of church leaders, some to Paul, some to Apollos, some to Cephas, some to Christ. What Paul is pointing out to them is that they all belong to Christ that they are all Christians, that they all share the one faith. Christianity is centered in Jesus Christ and not in earthly church leaders, however charismatic or eloquent. We are all baptized into the one faith, and we are baptized in the name of Christ, not the name of the minister or church leader who baptizes us. Of course, we know that today. We can see through the transparency of the allegiances of the Christians at Corinth. And we know that Paul's letter to the Corinthians, like so many of his letters, is written to a particular set of people in a particular place at a particular time. Context is vital. Otherwise, women would be still sitting in church with our heads covered and forbidden to speak, let alone preach or teach. Here I'm reminded of Rowan Williams' description of Brooke Foss Westcott's approach to the Bible as a field in which to exercise and grow spiritually. Ecumenism is not always easy. A Welshman was shipwrecked on a desert island and had to wait several years to be rescued. When a passing ship finally spotted his smoke signals and sent a launch craft to investigate, he gave his rescuers a tour of the island before returning to civilization. They were very impressed with all that he had built, but were intrigued to see that as well as the hut in which he lived, he'd built not one but two chapels on hills either side of the main beach. They asked him why. Ah, well, he said. See that chapel over there? Well, that's the chapel I go to every Sunday. See? And that other one? Well, that's the chapel I wouldn't be seen dead in. Here in Westminster, we are lucky to enjoy positive and flourishing relationships with one another. And there are many examples of this 
not least the prison's mission. Unity is as much a state of mind as it is an action, coming together in harmony. And this particular week points us to the importance and the vitality of prayer. Regardless of the small differences between our denominations, we all pray to God through the Holy Spirit and in the power of Christ. And that very act of praying, both as an action, as an attitude, brings us together. For in prayer we have communion not only with Christ, but with each other, with the whole body of the church, the mystical union of Christ's body. In a world full of such division and devastation, there are some who think that prayer doesn't really make any difference. In a recent documentary, a soldier was recalling his experiences in ground combat. He recalled how in one battle he'd been in a particularly tight spot and feared for his life. He prayed. Nothing changed in terms of the immediate danger he was in, but he said that an awful lot changed inside. Although he knew the huge risk he faced, he somehow felt calm, almost peaceful, and able to face whatever lay ahead. For him, prayer wasn't a miracle cure or a fix-all. It didn't even reduce the physical threat. But it worked, and it made a huge difference. One of the most challenging pieces of advice concerning prayer that I've ever been given is never to pray for a particular problem or situation unless you're prepared to help bring about the solution. This is certainly true when it comes to praying for unity among Christians. We have to be prepared to help not just to knock down barriers, but to help build bridges. That doesn't mean that we will always agree, nor does it mean it will be easy. We may struggle, but we must remember that it's okay to cherish and even celebrate our differences. We do not all have to act, talk, and think in the same way. For it's important not to confuse unity with uniformity. This is something Paul makes quite clear later on when he discusses the different gifts of the Spirit. For today, just as when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, it's focus that's important. That with our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, we will be united in the same mind and the same purpose. And so we pray. Loving God, Holy Lord, you, the one from whom on different paths all of us have come, to whom on different paths all of us are going, make strong in our hearts what unites us, build bridges across all that divides us, United, make us rejoice in our diversity, at one in our witness to your peace, a rainbow of your glory. Amen.